Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Uvalde, Texas, May the 24th, just after 11.30 in the morning local time. Shots rang out. Carnage ensued. An elementary school massacre that stunned a community and shocked the world. 21 people died, 19 of them just little kids. The deadliest school shooting since Sandy Hook. The sounds of violence, the sounds of silence. Lori Alhadef founded Make Our Schools Safe after her 14-year-old daughter, her only daughter, was killed in the Parkland, Florida school shooting in 2018. Lori is in Albany right now trying to pass Alyssa's law. Lori, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I want to ask you what your reaction was the minute you heard about Uvalde. I was devastated, heartbreaking. Unfortunately, I can know what these families are going through because my daughter, Alyssa, was murdered in her English classroom at Margie Stoneman Douglas High School on Valentine's Day in 2018. So what do you say to the community? You've been through this. You've been to hell and back. What do you say to the community, the family and friends of the victims, those who survived the shooting in Uvalde? How do they start to emerge from the darkness that this, this massacre has brought on? So I say to the community, friends, family, please wrap your arms around these families right now. They need every ounce of support possible to give them um, from mental health uh, therapy. They need just to be able to get up, to um, breathe, and every second of their day, I mean, their head is spinning right now. They have so much trauma. And it's so hard to understand what just happened, that your child was shot and killed in their school. Did you find yourself reliving Alyssa's murder? Yes, I mean, absolutely. It's so horrific. It really brought me back to February 14, 2018. And, you know, unfortunately, going through that day and, you know, re-seeing on the news what these families, what these uh what these moms and dads waiting outside. I mean, that was me. I was waiting outside and, and yelling at law enforcement because, you know, I, I knew my daughter was shot. Someone texted uh, Alyssa's best friend, Abby, and told her, and I needed to know where to go. And, you know, the reunification center on February 14th wasn't even set up yet. It was a complete mess. Communication was a disaster. And so, unfortunately, I know uh, horrifically what these, families are going through. Lori, you could have withdrawn from the world. You could have stayed in a dark hole. Instead, you founded Make Our Schools Safe. Why did you do that, and what is its mandate? So I needed to turn my pain and grief into action and to be Alyssa's voice. I feel that Alyssa lives inside of me. I started a nonprofit organization, Make Our Schools Safe. And we are focused on creating layers and layers of school safety protection in our schools. At the end of the day, you know, the gun issue is so polarizing. And I know people are fighting that fight. But we need to make sure that when we send our kids to school, that they come home alive. And so to make our schools safe, we have a list of law, which is panic buttons in schools, that if there is a life-threatening emergency situation, it's directly linked to law enforcement so they can get on the scene as quickly as possible to take down the threat or triage any of the victims. 
And right now, I'm currently at the Capitol in Albany, New York, pushing to get Alyssa's law passed this legislative session. I'm, I'm optimistic um, that they will hopefully move forward and make Alyssa's law uh, a law here in New York to help protect their schools. Lori, tell me what you have to do in order to get Alyssa's law passed. What will you be doing today in Albany, New York, as you are trying to get this law passed? So I've been here since Monday, and I've been talking to different legislators. My mom is here. She's 74 years old, and she has so much strength, and she's helping me. We're just talking with legislators, making Alyssa's law a 6870 uh, vital priority for the legislators to make this layer of school safety protection. Yesterday, we walked 125 uh, different legislators' offices, and then today we're going to do the same thing. And in the next few minutes, I'm going to be recognized here in the assembly, uh, being here today, trying to get Alyssa's law passed. Do you think anything will change as a result of the law being passed? And I sure hope, I pray to God that it will be. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, everybody's been very optimistic. I've really, I've talked to says, yeah, this is a great idea. And it really gets school boards. I'm, I'm actually a school board member for Broward County Public Schools in Florida. But it gives school board members a more defined approach to mass notification and communication in a life-threatening emergency situation and having it directly linked to law enforcement. And so this law, Alyssa's law, would mandate that. You know, because, you know, we have laws in place that say communicate, but, you know, that could just that just can mean to someone, oh, we just talked to our sheriff and we have a communications plan. And it's not defined enough. It needs to be more specific. And that's what Alyssa's law does. In terms of mass shootings, and I know that your purpose is not about gun control, it's about making schools safe. But will Alyssa's law, if and when passed, will it in some way enable this country, your country, my country, Canada, to... to find a way to reduce or eliminate mass murders? You know, I think people, unfortunately, are looking for this one, you know, step solution. And what we have to come to the understanding is that school safety is creating layers of safety protection from mental health, behavioral threat assessments, see something, say something on the Safer Watch app, Alyssa's Law, panic buttons in schools, school hardening measures, school resource officers in schools, actually building relationships with students and finding out what the root cause of their issues are and getting them that mental health therapy, those wraparound services to be able to meet the needs of our students and be able to figure out what is going on and prevent violence from happening before it happens. May I ask you about Alyssa? She would be, I believe, 18 at this point had she lived, what was she like? What did she mean to you? Thank you for asking. So Alyssa was beautiful, vivacious, all-American girl. She loved shopping. She loved going to the beach with her friends and riding the waves in Long Beach Island, New Jersey. And she was an amazing uh, debater. <laughs> she always won. And I, I really miss her so much. And I love her so much. And, you know, I'm here in, in Albany, New York, trying to, to pass Alyssa's law to honor Alyssa, to keep her memory alive, and to make our school safe. Lori Alhadef, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Make our schools safe. Alyssa's Law, 
continue to show the strength that you have been showing and lighting the way for so many others. You are an incredible person. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much. This week, the federal government introduced the firearms control bill. Glenn Perkins with police reaction. The federal government has introduced new gun control legislation. It includes a national freeze on the purchase, sale, importation, and transfer of handguns in Canada. Joining us now is York Regional Police Chief Jim McSween. Chief McSween, welcome. Hi, hi, how are you today? I'm very well, Chief. Thank you for asking. What is your initial reaction to the new legislation? Uh, my initial reaction is uh, that any time uh, the government comes out with new uh, rules and regulation and laws that, uh, you know, advance the cause of public safety and, and uh, provide more tools for police um, and the community at large to thwart any gun violence in, the, uh, in our community is a good thing in general. Um, so, you know, I'm always happy to see when, uh, when steps are taken to address some of the issues that, uh, that may play out with these uh, with guns in the streets and uh, gun crimes in Canada. If you could add to the legislation, what would that be? Um, well, I can't say specifically and give you uh, one piece of uh, advice on what I would change. The only thing I would say is, um, you know, the tools that are provided to Canada Border Services um, or any further tools that could be provided would help with the illegal uh, or illicit gun market uh, because we know as chiefs across this country that one of the significant issues we're all facing is uh, finding unlawful guns in the hands of people out in the streets. And we know, we, we know uh, vehemently that these guns are coming from the United States uh, and they're coming across the border. So, you know, from a demand perspective, um, collaboratively in our region and in the communities we all serve, we can always do better when it comes to education for our young people and, uh, you know, providing services that allow for all of us to do better with uh, young people to ensure they're not involved with drugs and guns and gang activity. Um, that helps with the demand side. But on the supply side, we know where the guns are coming from. And, and, it's, and it's generally handguns that are, are uh, the issue in most jurisdictions. I can tell you in York Region, um, in the past uh, year, in 2021, 98% of the uh, guns that were involved in gun crimes in York Region, 98% came across the border. So uh, anything that can be further uh, uh, added to the tools that are uh, and the uh, regulations and rules that have been provided through Bill C-21 would be a good thing. And I think it really is an issue of how do we ensure these guns are stopped at the border and they don't make their way into Canada? And it seems as though your officers here in York Region are almost seizing loaded handguns every day. It seems every time there's a vehicle stop, a loaded handgun is found. Yes, you're absolutely right. And this is the trend we've seen over the last couple of years is that, um, that we've seen that, you know, generally in the past, we would have seen large complex investigations and search warrants and, and, you know, that would have uh, been the reason we would have seized, you know, large quantities of guns or guns in the past. The trend that you've just mentioned is a disturbing trend in that many of our officers day in and day out 
uh, one or two handguns a week are being taken off the streets by, uh, you know, through, through general traffic stops for various reasons. So that's significantly um, changed over the past few years. And that trend is disturbing and it, uh, and it does pose a risk to public safety and to our officers. The Prime Minister has said with the introduction of this legislation, the government is capping the market for handguns, but that's not going to stop that issue, is it, of smuggling? I doubt it will, uh, it will have an impact on the smuggling issue, um, although, you know, there are pieces of the legislation that increase uh, penalties for people that are smuggling, um, but that's just one aspect of it. Like I said, um, the demand, if the demand is there, we can always work on that holistically uh, better as communities. But uh, from a supply perspective, we know where they're coming from. And until the tools are in place for Canada Border Services and, um, you know, the collaboration between Canada and the U.S. to thwart that, uh, that market and that, um, the transfer of those guns over the border, I'm not so sure that, uh, that uh, we will see that as an outcome of the legislation. But I guess we'll have to see how things play out over the next, uh, next uh, couple of years after things uh, materialize because, you know, we don't have the measure here yet. We don't have the impact of what is being proposed here yet. And that's going to take us some time. Education, as you just touched on, is one avenue, but there's also the consideration for stronger penalties. And just this week in Toronto, police picked up a 15-year-old boy with a loaded handgun. Yeah, well, listen, uh, as I mentioned before, um, you know, the approach uh, the bill itself is one aspect of uh, dealing with gun crimes. And I think there's uh, an approach that has to be had that brings all, um, all stakeholders to bear. And the Ministry of the Attorney General, when it comes to uh, the penalties, they have a role to play. The police have a role to play. Um, and to be quite frank, uh, the entire community has a role to play here. When you talk about social services, when you talk about, uh, you know, schools, Everyone has a role to play in uh, deterring and dismantling, um, you know, the issue of, of the draw on why young people in our region and across the country have a need or a want to in, be involved with, uh, with a handgun or with, with a gun. And uh, I can tell you in the last uh, few years, we've seen an uptick in, in uh, drug crimes as well. And uh, where we see drugs, in many cases, we see guns. So, you know, another area where there can be a lot of work done to help with, uh, with drugs. Um, again, uh, dealing with the uh, demand, right? So um, it, it has to be a holistic approach, I believe. And, uh, and there are many stakeholders that have roles to play. But uh, in, in a general sense, any step we can take, and the bill itself uh, does take some steps to help us uh, as police, as a community to, to thwart gun violence, is a good thing. Um, so, and I will comment, there's one area in this uh, legislation that I, I was happy to see personally, and it's, a, it's the uh, restrictions on replica firearms. And, um, you know, there's, there's some suggestion and, and there's a recommendation that piece of the legislation will have manufacturers adjust the design of airsoft uh, guns so they're not looking like real guns. And this is a very real issue. Our, and it's an officer safety issue. Our officers, as you'd mentioned, are, are seeing more guns in the streets and in many cases, and in some cases, I'll say, uh, these guns are replica firearms, uh, but they look like real firearms. And that poses a significant risk, not only to our officers, but also to the person who's carrying it. And uh, any step that can be taken to deal with that as an issue, 
uh, is a good thing. And this uh, legislation goes, goes uh, a long way to trying to deal with replicas as well. Chief McSween, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I've been speaking to Police Chief Jim McSween with York Regional Police. After the break, the CAA wants you to slow down, please. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. School's almost out, and with that, the CAA is reminding drivers to please pay attention and slow down. Kevin Frankish is on the road again. 105.9 The Region, and uh, we have teamed up, of course, with the CAA over the last little bit to talk about issues of road safety. And the end goal is to hopefully make our roads safer. Safer for everyone, for you and for me. Teresa DeFelice uh, joins me once again from the CAA Central Ontario. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm good. Good to be back, Kevin. It is. And we are going to talk about today the number one safety concern. That's right. Speeding and aggressive driving is taking a terrible toll on our roads uh, this year already and over the past couple of years. So when we talk about speeding, um, we're not talking about people racing, okay? A lot of times we think people speeding is 50, 60, 70 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. We are talking about people doing 20 kilometers an hour over the limit. And those limits are in areas for a reason, right? They're on our highways for a reason, and they're in our, our local streets and communities for a reason. And that is because there's a lot of different uh, objectives of, of the roadway and what the roadway is there to do. And primarily, it's to keep you safe. And we've had such a tragedy here in Vaughan uh, uh, in the past few months of two beautiful young children in their driveway and you know, killed by someone who felt that they were in control, but they weren't. They were doing a speed that in no way should have been done on a residential street. And it only took a second. That person didn't go out intending to kill someone, but it happened. Yeah, actually, you know, we, we run on a, an annual survey or our, every couple of years, but we just got the results of our 2022 speeding survey. And, you know, 83% of Ontarians are seeing speeding on the roads. Yes, that's on highways. But we had a huge jump to with people saying that the places that they're seeing uh, a lot of speeding is on local city roads and, and in school zones and residential streets. You know, so what we typically would say that people are, are, you know, driving fast on highways or major arterial roads is now sort of in every community, in, in every local road. It's become a, an issue where people are either racing to the stop sign or racing to avoid traffic. And it's, it's a serious concern. It's a concern by the police who are trying to figure out how to enforce the assault. But it's a concern for everybody who lives on these streets and either walks, cycles or drives. Uh, and coming up in a few minutes, we're going to tell you how you can actually get something for free, by the way, from the CAA for your neighborhood that 
can make a difference. So stay tuned for that right now. I got to pass on a story to you. Just just yesterday, uh, I was with a friend in a residential area. She has a six-year-old boy and he uh, was going across the street to see a friend and he ran across without looking. Okay. And, and, and we both shouted at him, uh, you know, and, and to remind him, but a car came barreling down the street, a white Volkswagen, and it was going way too fast for the street. He made a mistake. He's six years old. The driver would not have seen if it had been one second later, the driver would have hit him, would not have seen him coming. And, and, and to me, it's mind-boggling why anyone still wants to uh, just speed through a residential neighborhood because they don't know when someone's going to come running out. This is especially true in, you know, residential roads, in school zones. You know, children are unpredictable. They don't have the same ability to juggle all the different parameters. Getting that ball back is, is seems to be the main issue. They can't juggle the fact that they've got to look for traffic or that a car might be barreling down towards them. And so it really is a driver's responsibility to be aware of the road conditions. And that includes obeying the, the speed limits. Mm-hmm. And you can, you know, you can argue, uh, well, I'm, I'm okay at that speed limit. However, whatever the speed limit for a residential area is, whether it's 30, 40, or 50 kilometers an hour, you're better able to stop, react, uh, than you are at 70 kilometers an hour. Correct. And, and actually, I, you know, I know there's been some resistance to the fact that, um, you know, there are people up there getting a little frustrated that municipalities are changing their speed limits. Um, you know, regular 50 kilometer streets are becoming 40 or 30. The data exists to show that, especially in school zones and certain residential streets, it's a lifesaver. It's the difference between injuring someone and killing someone, especially a child. And, and so this is, you know, why the, these speed limits are being reduced is because we don't have the right behaviors that are happening by people who are traveling these roads by vehicles. And the only way to do that is to change some of the conditions to force that change behavior. People are driving distracted. People aren't being aware or expecting the unexpected. I've, I've said this time and time again. Driving is a skill. It requires all of your attention and it requires you to obey and know the rules of the road. 43% of Ontario drivers, according to your study, engage in speeding. A uh, majority of those 60% speed between 10 to 19 kilometers an hour over. The 19 yeah, is important. That was not done on purpose or, or that yeah. was not done uh, just accidentally. No, it's not. There, there is this belief out there that if you travel, you know, if you speed under 19 or under 20 kilometers an hour, you are not likely to get a ticket on a highway or you're, you're okay. But I think there's people who have misinterpreted some of the signage that it exists out there and misunderstands what happens. So speeding one kilometer over the posted speed limit is speeding. And you could be subject to a speeding charge if there is enforcement and you get caught. Um, people tend to go under 20 kilometers an hour. So that 19 to under is because they feel like that puts them under sort of the, the radar for lack of a better term. Um, the charges are a little bit lower at that, at that rate. So after 19 kilometers over the speed limit, uh, charges get exponentially higher. Then you start adding in things like demerit points and things like that. Um, so there's, there is this fallacy that people have learned to drive saying, well, if I just go under 20 kilometers, it's, it's okay. And it's speeding is speeding. Mm-hmm. 
So you now at the CAA, and these are effective because I've been in neighborhoods where they are, and it does give me cause to think, and that is you are offering free lawn signs. Tell me about that. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, we launched our Slow Down Please campaign. And these are signs that are available to pe- for people to put on their front lawns. And, and this is, you know, we've seen these throughout the years, some municipalities have come up with them. You see kids at play signs. There's a, a number of reasons or different uh, messaging, but Uh, you know, what we've really found is that people are appreciating it. And we've actually heard back from some of the residents and members who've picked them up that they are noticing a difference when drivers on their streets are reminded uh, by these signs to slow down. And so I think too, that that we really have to get the message out to drivers and, and try and appeal if possible to their common sense. Now, speeding on a highway is one thing. Uh, and folks, if you're going to be speeding on a highway, your chance of, of injury or death increase exponentially. But when you're speeding in a neighborhood, it doesn't make any sense because how long, how much time are you going to save by doing 20 kilometers an hour over one or two blocks on a street? And you're not, you know, especially with stop signs or traffic lights. So, well, they don't stop for stop signs anyway. So, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this perception that you're actually saving time, uh, maybe you're avoiding traffic, but avoid it at the regular speed if you're going to do that. Don't go whizzing through residential streets where you've got, again, kids, you've got seniors, you've got pets. Um, especially if it's a community that you're not familiar with. We, you know, we now have uh, wayfinding things that tell us to take shortcuts, yeah. but obey the speed limits this because is, you, you don't understand what, what's happening there. You bring up a really good point. We're going through neighborhoods now. We never would have thought about going through. In fact, a lot of neighbors are complaining to wayfinding uh, groups such as Google, such as Waze, saying, can you please stop putting people on our streets? So we've seen an increase in traffic volume on these streets as well as an increase in speed. What chance do kids have? It's it's really concerning. And, you know, I think that, again, this is becoming such a huge issue, which is, again, why we're seeing lowered speed limits. We're seeing the support and use of automated speed enforcement because you can't have a police officer on every residential road. I mean, we struggle with uh, enforcement on all kinds of issues. There's just not enough resources to do that. And so, you know, the only way to do that is to find the technical tools um, to, to deal with behavior change. The best way to deal with behavior change is people would recognize their part and do their part by actually going the speed limit, not driving distracted, following the rules of the road. So the more, you know, the more people that are driving distracted, uh, the more incidents we have, the more tickets that are issued. Um, it only enforces the, the, the belief that people won't change their own behavior. And the way to do that is higher speed fines, higher penalties. And we're seeing that with speeding and aggressive driving, like stunt driving that was released last year. It will, it will just continue unless people just sort of say, hey, if this were my neighborhood, would I be going that fast? Do I want someone going that fast when my kid's playing uh, on, on the sidewalk or you know trying to get to school? We're trying to accomplish a lot of things. And all of these, these risks are playing into our inability to achieve those, like having kids walk and bike to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people are scared to allow their kids to do that. People are scared to have their kids playing out front. Many of us grew up playing out front in front of our homes. And um, the, the changing nature of traffic is, is really creating some fear. It's 
but for, for a real reason, right? People are getting hurt. There's a lot of near misses um, and we need to be really tackling that. How do people get the signs? So you can go to a CAA store and, and uh, every person's up to, eligible to get two signs for free. Uh, they come with some instructions because every municipality has some different rules um, in terms of being able to where they can place these signs. But, uh, uh, you know, in York region, we've got a, a couple of stores that you can go to. There's New Market on Davis Drive and in Markham on Woodbine Avenue. And you can uh, get these two signs put them up on their front lawns. We've seen a huge uptake and partly it's because people are saying they work. It's giving drivers a second, a sobering second thought about what they're doing. Yeah, I, I, I would have to say they do. I would have to say they do. So how, how do people find their nearest? You know what? I'm not even going to ask you that. I'm going to tell you. You just go to Google Maps, you put CAA store and it exactly. will uh, give you your, your nearest one. Exactly. So yes, so look up where you're lo- your closest CAA store and uh, please walk in and, and ask for your lawn signs. All right, let's hope they have some uh, sort of effect. Thank you very much for this again. Teresa DeFelice from the CAA. My pleasure. From astronaut to author Chris Hadfield, journalist to author Peter Mansbridge, rock star to author Bono, secretary to author J.K. Rowling. How about emergency room physician to author Dr. Daniel Kalla? He wowed the literary world with his bestseller, Lost Immunity. He has a new book just out, The Darkness in the Light, already getting awards buzz. Writing feverishly throughout the entire pandemic while keeping his patients alive and well in the ER, Dr. Daniel Kalla joins us now on the feed. Hi, Dan. It's so good to be with you again here on 105.9 The Region. Welcome. Thank you. It's so good to be back with you, Anne. So The Darkness in the Light, I'm intrigued by the title, number one, but also the premise on which this is based. You're, you kind of do a deep dive into the massive and often confusing pharmaceutical industry. Why? Well, you know, and that's just a, a you know a sliver of of the novel in terms of it, certainly talk about new antidepressants and stuff, but it's more about remoteness and detachment in a kind of post-COVID world. And as you said, it's set way up in the Arctic in the polar summer where it never gets dark. But, but there's a lot of darkness going on in this one community that it's set in. So you know, it's a story about detachment, betrayal, treachery, and being a thriller. Obviously, there's some sinister stuff going on, but um, you know, it's, it, it covers a lot of post-pandemic themes as well. The sort of stuff we're seeing, the effect the pandemic is having, has yeah. had. <laughs> Now, here's the synopsis that I read uh, about the book. What begins as a missing person's inquiry and suspicion over a pharmaceutical cover-up quickly evolves into a terrifying journey of treachery and death. Where does that come from in you, Dan? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I don't know. But obviously, as you said, I've touched on big pharma and pharmaceutical issues before. And but, but this is more about suicide or the appearance of suicide in, in this town and, and depression, and especially the sort of epidemic of depression we're seeing post-pandemic. But where this is set in Utkwiavik, Alaska, which is the most northern town in the Western Hemisphere, it's an incredible community, beautiful, isolated, you know, <clears throat> exotic and, uh, and, remo- and remote. Um, there is a, there's an epidemic of depression and suicide that exists in the Arctic anywhere. And anyway, and it's just being compounded. And the hero of this story is a psychiatrist who deals from Anchorage, Alaska, originally remotely with these patients via virtual medicine, which has become so popular, as you know, in this day and age. 
But when he loses one of his patients to a presumed suicide and a second one goes missing, he's kind of riddled with guilt and he has to go up there to figure out what's going on. And since he suffers from depression himself and has used this new antidepressant himself, um, he knows of which he speaks. So it's a very personal journey. And then uh, when he gets there, a lot of things go wrong and there's a huge twist in the middle of the story that I'm, I'm very proud of. But but as I said, it, it covers a lot of the themes um, in an area that's 24 hours light, but there's a lot of dark things going on. What did you learn about mental health, about mental illness, about suicide, about the pharmaceutical industry and their role in trying to keep people alive and and safe? Mm -hmm. What did you learn about this? And many people would think, as a physician, and you've been a physician for a while, that you would have you'd have a yeah. Well, you're still a young man, (laughs) but that you would have a an insight into all of this already. But what did you learn by virtue of the research in the book? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I, I see, because I work in a inner city hospital in Vancouver, I see a lot of mental health and substance issues. I mean, suicide is one of the worst, or threatened suicide and completed suicides are one of the worst, most devastating things we see. But, but there is no question, as I was starting to research and writing it, you know, in the second year of the pandemic, that suicide is rising. And, and as we get into this issue of remoteness and detachment, um, it, it compounds the problem when people feel isolated, they're more likely to kill themselves. And, you know, the, the issue about pharmaceuticals isn't new. We've known for years that new antidepressants work, but often they have a terrible side effect in that when they start working, when they're bringing people out of the deepest point of depression, they give people the energy to think about suicide when, you know, at the bleakest point, they don't have the energy to get out of bed. But suddenly, as they're getting better, sometimes there's this risky period when they're at risk of actually killing themselves. So I touch on, on that issue and several others. But yeah, there was the whole research was very enlightening, not to, not to mention what I learned about the Arctic and, and the uh, <clears throat> indigenous community up there and, and, and just the native culture out there. It was fascinating. And an interesting choice as to where you located most of the book when coming out of this pandemic, as you've already mentioned, there's been incredible isolation, even if somebody has a next-door neighbor living in the center of an urban setting. Why choose exactly. Why choose to go that remote, if you will? No, I, I, it was a very deliberate choice. And my daughter helped me find this location. Mm-hmm. And, and I wish I was because of the pandemic, I couldn't visit this community, but I studied everything I could about it. I, I, you're right, remoteness is one of the key themes of this, but also um, not just isolation, but inaccessibility. This town, even though it's a town of 6,000, the capital of northern Alaska, effectively, um, it's only reachable by airplane. So by creating this kind of, you know, what starts as a story about suicide, but evolves into more and potentially, a, you know, a, a, a a crime, um, I create this kind of locked door mystery in this town that nobody can really escape from. So it's just the perfect setting for multiple reasons for me. Who, in your view, should read this book? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) thank you for asking. I mean, I I think, you know, if I can uh, blow my own horn and I apologize for this, but you know Margaret Cannon, the great reviewer in the Global Mail, called this the first, the perfect post-pandemic thriller. And for me, it was the height of the accolades that I've got in my writing because that's that's what I'm trying to write is a is an entertaining thriller you could read on a beach or an airplane. I always because those are the kind of the books I look for and the books I read. But I also, you know, there's a message here, and you know, it talks about some triggering issues for sure, primarily suicide. 
But talking about suicide doesn't cause suicide. Sometimes it prevents suicide. And there's a message about the dangers of, you know, remoteness and isolation in this story. So, you know, I, I think it could have wide appeal for, for a number of reasons. But first and foremost, I hope I entertain the reader. Let's talk about your work as an emergency uh, room. Oh, you're right now the director of emergency medicine, but you're right there in the trenches and were throughout this entire pandemic. What did you see and how did you get through this? You know, you were trying to help people keep their lives, to save their lives. How yeah. did you manage to stay together through all of this? Yeah, no, I mean, like everybody, it wasn't just those of us who work in the emergency, but everybody suffered, obviously, during this pandemic. But it was different, I think, for many of us in the emergency department, because at the beginning, there was so much adrenaline. It was like going to war, you know, and there was, you know, there was this uh, surge of purpose in what we do. It was terrifying, but, you know, but as it wore on and as you got into controversies about masks and vaccines and stuff, it's kind of ground, it kind of ground to this kind of stalemate of just constant, um, you know, illness with, with surges and spikes. And it was so draining, particularly our nurses. They suffered so much. They worked, you know, so hard through it and they were asked so much of so much. And, you know, and, and then when our staff started to get sick themselves, we all had to cover each other. So it really sort of wore us down, I would say, in the last year. And, you know, and, and, and the sense of community and purpose and all in it together in the way that people supported healthcare workers in the beginning kind of eroded later on where there was a lot of us against them and 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 that unfortunately was demoralizing for us so it, it's been a grind and you know and in the emergency the interesting thing is we were so quiet for a year because nobody wanted to leave the house people were terrified about coming to the hospital but emergencies across canada just started to explode in about the second year when people started to come out so not only all the covid related conditions but all the heart attacks and strokes and broken bones and everything else that hadn't really happened the year before people were like stockpiling their medical problems so it was a bit of a perfect storm um for the last year so it's been, yeah, it's been a grind i'm going to ask you a philosophical question so the title of the book is the darkness in the light is there in any way some light in the darkness I think so. I, I really, I mean, I think that's, uh, I, I think, I think there's really hope. I, I was, you know, particularly hopeful at the beginning, the way, as I said, the community rallied at the beginning gave me hope in humanity. And I think, you know, just in a practical sense, I don't think we'll ever be taken as unawares by the next pandemic. I mean, unfortunately, a hundred years passed between the last serious pandemic and we kind of forgot about what a risk it could be. So I think the next time the world faces this, we'll, we'll be better prepared and we'll have the memory. But so, so I think there is hope, but I think there's scars. I think the scars of not just the people who, who are, who died or who have the long COVID, but the survivors and, 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 and just everybody who had to get through the last two years, I think that's going to be burned into our consciousness for the rest of our lives. I agree. Dr. Daniel Calla, Director of Emergency Medicine at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, also a best-selling author with a new book out, The Darkness in the Light. Thank you so much for spending time with us on The Feed. Next, the documentary, The Cannon Barbie Killers. Tina Cortez with a preview. Mayor Garofalo is an award-winning investigative journalist and broadcast producer, her latest project, The Ken and Barbie Killers, part of HLN's original series, Very Scary People. Great to speak with you again, Mary. Thank you for having me on. 
Now, you and I remember the story of Paul Bernardo and Carla Hamalka, but for our listeners who may not be familiar, could you provide a bit of the background? Uh, well, Paul Bernardo was this charismatic, handsome uh, young man who um, had a truly evil, frightening side to him. And uh, for many years, starting in 1987, there were these sort of unexplained uh, rapes going on in the Scarborough area. They knew that it was, they believed it was one person. And as it turned out to be, allegedly, it was Paul Bernardo. Uh, Paul Bernardo then met a woman named Carla Homolka. They fell in love and they got married. Um, he was a deviant, a sexual deviant who fantasized uh, about schoolgirls, little schoolgirls. And she then fed into his uh, obsession and deviance. And they, uh, in 1991, they ended up kidnapping Leslie Mahaffey. Uh, Leslie Mahaffey was a 15-year-old girl who had been out for the evening and uh, came home past her curfew. Her mother locked her out because she was angry that she had been doing this, you know, more times than she wanted and tried to teach her a lesson. So she ended up that evening, unfortunately, coming in the crosshairs of Paul Bernardo, who then kidnapped her and uh, brought her to his home uh, and raped and murdered her. Um, The day that they found Leslie Mahaffey's body was his wedding day. And while they were fishing out this beautiful young girl who was encased in cement from the river, he was getting married to Carla Homoka in a Cinderella-like wedding with a horse-drawn carriage, and it was, uh, it was very macabre. And then his obsession continued. They later, he and his wife, later abducted Kristen French as a school in her school uniform. They then took her back to the home, raped her, and eventually murdered her. Um, He was then discovered and brought to justice and where he's now doing a life sentence. And there are so many, as you know, horrible, uh, macabre details in between this story that's been going on since 1987. Now, you covered this story in the 90s. Why did you want to cover it again? Why tell the story of these killers again? I don't think this is a story that will ever go away. I think this is a story that hit the soul of Canadians. Unbelievable that there could be people out there capable of this kind of criminality. Um, He is... uh, from our, he's one of these elusive criminals that um, will always uh, have the public will always have interest in because I think everybody everybody tries to figure out what was going in going on in this guy's head. I mean, you know, what was his psych, psyche? How and why did you become this person? How could you be capable of this? Um, also, I forgot in, in my quick uh, chronology of telling you the story that one of the uh, women that he was convicted of, of killing was his wife's sister. Mm-hmm. Um, he had one evening uh, expressed desire to have sex with Carla Homolka's sister, Tammy, 
and they drugged her, and he had his way with her, and then they had given her too much of uh, the, uh, the drugs to put her to sleep, and she died that evening. So there were three murders of young girls, and one of them was one of his direct relatives. So, yeah, I think this is a story that will never go away. It will last as one of our most infamous uh, crimes in Canada. And, um, and I did that story uh, even unknowingly back in 1987 when the first Scarborough rape happened and they were profiling, you know, who might be responsible for these rapes. And then, as you know, I went from Toronto to New York. And in New York, when it was discovered that it was Paul Bernardo, you know, I had been pitching it to my bosses in New York. And, you know, there's a story up in Canada and you really, it's really shocking. They're called the Barbie and Ken murderers because, you know, he was good looking. She was, they look like Barbie and Ken. And uh, at first they were not very interested in the story, but uh, I just kept pitching it saying, this is becoming a really big story. And then eventually they had me come to Toronto and I spent uh, a couple of weeks here working on a half hour show. Um, on Paul Bernardo. That was back in 93. Uh, this time around, CNN has a show called uh, Very Scary People, and it's hosted by Donnie Wahlberg, Mark Wahlberg's brother. And the show basically takes a look at, you know, the most frightening killers in recent history. And it looks at the history, psychology, and the motives of these criminals and eventually how they got caught. And so they thought this would be a perfect uh, example to profile on their show of one of the most elusive killers of our time. And so they decided that they were going to profile this story once again. And because it had been uh, one of my big stories and one of my big stories during my career, uh, they asked me to help them uh, put it together. And I've also been interviewed um, for um, for the piece. So you've covered this story previously. We know that about you. Is there new information in the series? The infor- when we really go back and, and uh, dissect the entire case from beginning to end, right from his rapes to the time that he was arrested and beyond when they found, as you recall, they, they found some horrible uh, graphic videos that he had taken of the murders. He had uh, basically, he had hid them inside the light fixtures of the home he lived in. And police, when they were searching the home, did not check the light fixtures. So it's basically a dissection. I mean, we talked to some of the reporters who covered it, Nick Prawn and uh, Paul Hunter at CBC. Nick Prawn works the Toronto Sun. Um, we also uh, spoke to the FBI profiler, Greg um, McCrary, who was hired at the time uh, when they were trying to figure out who this killer might be and profiled uh, Paul Bernardo. And so it's really a look back at uh, everybody who was uh, essential in getting him arrested and he and his wife arrested and profiling him uh, as, you know, this horrible killer who got away with a lot of it for many years, uh, basically because he was a handsome-looking man and uh, married to a beautiful woman who had the perfect life. They lived in this little pink house in St. Catharines, and 
you know, nobody in their right mind would have believed them to be serial killers. So it's a look back at every element of this story from 1987 until he was put into jail. Well, Mary, you're an outstanding storyteller, so I can't wait to watch the series. Where can our listeners and followers catch it? Yeah, the show will premiere on Sunday, June 5th at 9 p.m. on HLN. It will be two one-hour back-to-back shows, uh, and it, HLN is CNN's sister network. And then it will also air um, on HBO Max shortly thereafter, and it will be available on demand as well. Mary, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Tina. Good talking to you. When we come back, the return of the Canadian Open. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The Canadian Open is finally back. Jim Lang, tease it up. After a two-year hiatus thanks to the pandemic, one of the golf's great events, one of the national opens, the RBC Canadian Open, comes back. Yeah, from June 6th to June 12th, the tournament kicking off on the night that the famous St. George's Golf Country Club in Etobicoke, that classic Stanley Thompson design, it is back. Thrilled to be speaking to Brian Crawford, the tournament director of the RBC Canadian Open. And Brian, it's so good to talk to you again and have this tournament back to where it belongs. Well, thank you so much, Jim. Yeah, and we're thrilled. Uh, to be back uh, this year after the last two years. And uh, we've just seen so much uh, pent-up excitement for the event and for the tournament that is uh, really shaping up to be the biggest and most successful kind of in every uh, category that we measure. And we're really excited to be back uh, here this year. Well, and it's a star-studded lineup, Brian. I'm thinking Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, Roy McIlroy. You're talking about the who's who of the elite of golf will be at St. George's. Yeah, we're pretty fortunate. The, the field is uh, phenomenal. Uh, certainly the best players in the world are all playing here uh, in Canada next week. Uh, and we've got a star-studded field of Canadians as well that uh, will be taking on St. George's and looking to uh, bring the Canadian Championship back to a Canadian. So we're really, uh, really pleased. Um, obviously really fortunate to have uh, an amazing partner in RBC and, and the Team RBC Ambassadors as well that you know, give us such a great uh, home field advantage. I think about Richmond Hills, Taylor Pendrith, Listowels, Corey Connors, and on and on it goes. I mean, there really is a great crop of Canadian golfers right now on the tour, Brian. Yeah, exactly. You know, and every week, you know, week in and week out, um, you know, they're challenging to win tournaments. Um, you obviously mentioned Corey, you know, week in and week out that, you know, he's up there in the leaderboard and Adam and Mackenzie and Taylor. And as you said, and it goes on and, and there's great young players uh, that uh, are have made their way onto the tour uh, now as well. And uh, we'll have quite a few others that have uh, entered the field uh, through an exemption, through regional qualifying or the amateur championship or other sorts of uh, means through our qualifying process. Uh, and it's, you know, really an opportunity for Canadians to play on the PGA Tour uh, that maybe don't play every week and are striving to to find their way onto the tour. Speaking with Brian Crawford, the tournament director of the RBC Canadian Open, it is back after a two-year hiatus because of the pandemic taking place at St. George's Golf and Country Club from June 6th to June 12th. And Brian, the one thing that I find really good about the new PGA schedule is the fact that you have tournaments 
in the Eastern Time Zone, the Canadian Open at St. George's, then the golfers go to the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. So it almost ensures you're going to have a great group of golfers getting ready for the U.S. Open and don't have to worry about all the time changes and travel back in the day when they would come right after the Open Championship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was definitely a, you know, it's kind of a challenging time slot to, to travel, uh, you know, across time zones and, and come back. And, uh, you know, that, that has definitely been uh, a factor in the uh, increase in the field strength over the last two opens that we've hosted. Uh, the fact that they are just down the road at Memorial, that they are headed to the U.S. Open here in North America. You know, you mentioned this year it's on the West Coast, you know, a year that it's on the West Coast. You know, it's just a couple hours flight instead of, you know, six plus hours flight. And a year like this year, you know, when we're uh, both on the East Coast, it's almost a drive for some for some players. So uh, definitely a great advantage to uh, have our national championship uh, right up close to the U.S. National Championship and, and be able to take advantage of those opportunities. And Brian, I mean, the significance of winning this tournament, I think Elite Trevino, Tiger Woods in 2000, what it meant to him, Jim Furyk, the emotions of Jason Day when he won, Roy McIlroy, it means a lot to the top players in the tour to win a championship like this. Yeah, absolutely. There's a little bit more uh, to winning a national championship uh, than perhaps some other weeks on tour. And as you mentioned, the, the who's who of golf royalty uh, have won this tournament. I mean, maybe famously one that never uh, that never got uh, to hoist the trophy in a, a number of attempts. But you know, everyone else has. You know, it's part of their story and and part of um, you know golf lore in that way. And we're very fortunate that we've got such a long history. You know, the third oldest tournament on tour, uh, and we have the opportunity to play on these historic courses like St. George's uh, this year. So. You know, there's a lot to love about the event, you know, from a history perspective, and there's just as much to love about it from added to the events in the last couple of years, you know, bringing music, uh, RBC X music uh, coming to the RBC can open and integrating with the golf tournament, bringing food uh, and food festivals to the tournament and just so many other components, people's you know, favorite hole on course, the rink hole, you know, all these sorts of things that make it, you know, more than just a golf tournament. Get more details of the website, rbccanadianopen.com. And of course, on their Twitter and Instagram feeds, you get some great social media content. And I'd be remiss, Brian, if I didn't wrap up and talk about the galleries, the Canadian golf fans, it's one thing that's commented on by all the top golfers is the quality of the galleries. Maybe there's not sort of that uh, drunken mayhem you see in some other tournaments in parts of the United States. They're passionate, they're into it, they're cheering on the golfers, and it's a wide variety of golfers getting fan support during this tournament, I find. No question about that. And, you know, Rory McIlroy made those comments uh, after winning in 2019 that, you know, it was like the perfect blend of people having fun and being loud, but being respectful of the traditions and values of the game and really a perfect blend of, uh, of the rowdiness and fun and golf. And he just, you know, he we couldn't ask for a more glowing endorsement of what, you know, an experience it is here because we want people to come and have fun and have a great time and enjoy the environment. That's that's what it's for. It's a, it's a sport and entertainment event. Uh, but there's, you know, an aspect to golf that is deep-rooted and the Canadian fans get that and it just makes the event even that much more enjoyable for everyone. I know you're very, very busy, Brian, getting everything ready around Islington Avenue, St. George's Golf and Country Club. We thank you so much for taking time. It is so great to see the RBC Canadian Open back where it belongs and it's going to be a fantastic tournament. It's going to be awesome. Thanks, Brian. Oh, thanks, Dr. Jim. We appreciate it. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.